Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Now featuring our summer drinks. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. For the Wilkinson sisters, being a Wilkinson meant becoming a well-raised soldier. And I remember him sitting down having a talk to us saying, you know, y'all got to be very brave because I want to have something I want you guys to do. Their childhood began during the civil rights era in the midst of massive resistance. If the Wilkinson sisters were soldiers for the cause, their father, the Reverend Dr. R.R. Wilkinson, was the general. Reverend Wilkinson not only risked his own safety and security, but he risked that of his family. And he risked that of of, uh, Hill Street Baptist Church. There were churches bombed in the South for doing a lot less work. It was as president of Roanoke's NAACP that the Reverend worked in a secret biracial committee strategizing integration of Roanoke schools, lunch counters, and theaters. And so there really was, I think, a more holistic approach to integrating Roanoke that happened in a nonviolent, quiet way, if you will. Decades later, the Wilkinsons returned to Roanoke to see his legacy remembered. My grandfather, the Reverend Dr. R.O. Wilkinson, he is Ronald, and Ronald is him. It's the start of summer in Roanoke City and a typically busy, bustling public pool is quiet. No swim lessons, no birthday parties, just an empty field. That's because when city crews began renovation on the Washington Park pool in 2022, they dug into remnants of a city landfill. And now the community has to decide where the new pool will go. We can't put a pool back where the pool was to begin with. To better understand the issue ahead of the community, we have to take a look back. Because the pool floats up to the surface, memories of promises, picket lines, and progressive civil rights leaders. To understand that past, you've got to get to know the people. People like Cassandra Lighty's father, the Reverend Dr. R.R. Wilkinson. Everything that's going to happen from this point on, he deserves it. Oh, we are now recording. Recently, I connected with Cassandra, her two sisters, Nadine Johnson and Danita Wilkinson, and her nephew, Nathaniel Benjamin. I'd recently come across a website dedicated to Reverend Wilkinson 
created by his grandson, Nathaniel. And I wanted to let the new generation that's coming up know more about what my grandfather did. And so during the process of um, just looking through all the other articles, I discovered that I haven't really known everything. What he discovered were articles, pictures, newsreels, and memories of a man who did more in a lifetime than most. It's like I um, am finally getting those answers that I wanted to ask him. And it's like um, it it became deeper. It became um, very, very um, much more important than I ever realized. Reverend Wilkinson died in 1993. But to understand his story, we'll start at the beginning in Amelia County, Virginia, in 1923. Raymond Rogers Wilkinson was born June 18, 1923, the ninth of Lavinia and Reverend Isaiah Wilkinson's 11 children. The family grew up poor on a homestead, but family and faith were important. He used to um, preach to the chickens when he would be outside, you know, when he was a young kid. And his other siblings would laugh at him. Cassandra says her father was likely influenced by his own father to follow a calling to faith. But it wasn't realized until after World War II, during which Wilkinson served in the South Pacific. And he had one of the worst jobs you could ever have, and that was to bury uh, the dead bodies. And um, because back then, that was the task given to a lot of the black soldiers. So after that experience, I think that changed him tremendously. She says that during the Battle of Okinawa, Wilkinson was on a U.S. destroyer, and he made a vow to God. If he made it out alive, he would dedicate his life to the Lord. Towards the end of the war, Wilkinson meets Elise Wells in Norfolk, and together they have a daughter, Frances Wells, in August of 1946. Two years later, he enrolled in the historically Black college, Virginia Union University in Richmond, to study education and philosophy. While on campus, he wasn't the smartest, I would say, in as far as getting uh, grade, good grades. And so that's when he enlisted my mother to be his tutor. Ten days after Wilkinson and his bride, Euphysenia, graduated, Cassandra was born. And then Nadine in 1953, and by 1955, Wilkinson had become an ordained minister. The struggle was real in the beginning because he had to start on what we call the Chitlin Circuit. He did all the little small churches, sometimes making $14 a week to support his, his, his family. So he had to preach at different churches all through the country. I remember riding a lot of times in the cars. I'm like, why are we, you know, we're just traveling all the time. But people, I remember people being very nice to us, feeding us, and that type of thing. But I know the beginning of the struggle was very real. But in 1956, Wilkinson lands a solid role, ministering to the congregation of First Baptist Church in Rocky Mount. Nadine recalls him as very serious in church, but with a good sense of humor. At home, he wasn't strict, a strict preacher at all. He allowed us to be ourselves. And I guess because and when I think about it, I guess it was because his father was a preacher. So he probably grew up saying, well, he's not going to raise his children a certain way like that. But anyway, uh, our father at home, he loved music. And our mother always told us when he was younger, he, would, he loved to dance. 
Within two years, Wilkinson was hired at Hill Street Baptist Church in Roanoke's historic Gainesboro neighborhood, a position he would hold for the next 33 years. By 1959, his youngest daughter, Danita, was born. Everywhere we went, we were Reverend Wilkinson's daughters. And my father, one thing he loved to do on Saturday mornings was go to the farmer's market. And he liked going early, and he would always stop at every stand and talk to all the um, the shopkeepers. And everywhere we went, people would stop and talk to him. Stop and, hey, Reverend Wilkinson. And sometimes people would express a concern, and he would say, I'll get back to you, or I know somebody. And then he'd take my hand, and we'd finish shopping, and then stop his, and that was, and that was a constant. It was a constant. Life was good for the Wilkinson sisters. They had birthday parties in the basement, rode bikes around town, but the Jim Crow South was inescapable. He was very protective of us. He knew he always sensed danger or situations where we shouldn't be. No, you can't go over here, can't drink over there, you can't do that. I never felt afraid when I was with my father. By 1959, Wilkinson becomes the president of Roanoke's NAACP. From then on, he became and remained a very busy man. In April of 1960, Wilkinson holds his first press conference on the steps of his church. He calls out Roanoke City leadership, declaring they had not done enough to begin integrating the city. He said the, quote, men who are in high places wouldn't use their influence to support a biracial committee to start that work. So the committee moved underground. They would meet like three or four o'clock in the morning. They would meet on all strange hours of the morning in secret with this biracial committee. Did you guys know about that committee? No, I didn't. No, I just know that he would come in the house late late at night some mornings, like I could hear him walking in the house, one or two, daddy's car pull up. It's late, one or two a.m. in the morning. The committee was made up of businessmen and clergymen, both black and white, who made late night deals and plans to integrate public spaces, all while the NAACP committed to nonviolent protests and lunch counter sit-ins. I don't know if my Sandra or Anita, Mama remembers, but one of the meetings were at the dentist, right? You know, uh, he, he would take his daughters to the dentist and and, and I was so everybody was thinking, okay. Yeah, we, and they said, <laughs> he made us in the lobby. He we made us in the lobby. We were just sitting there. Yeah. yeah. But they would be conducting business. They would be conducting business in a dentist's office, integration business. Anything. Y'all didn't realize this? You were just like, why are we at the dentist all the time? No. By August of 1960, Woolworth's lunch counter was the first place officially integrated in Roanoke. Accompanied by Wilkinson, two women and a boy came in. The trio was served a slice of pie, a soda, and a sundae, and then they left. The Roanoke Times headline declared, Roanoke lunch counters desegregated quietly. There were no problems. The manager shook hands, let two, um, a mother and, a, and her son come in, sit down, eat, and that was it. They left peacefully. The sisters say they, too, became guinea pigs. 
Their father would bring them to lunch counters and restaurants to see if the white employees would serve them. But their biggest test came later that year. And I remember him sitting down having a talk to us saying, you know, y'all got to be very brave because I want to have something I want you guys to do. We have to bear in mind that just because the Supreme Court would make a decision, that did not mean that automatically local communities complied. Here's Roanoke historian Pastor Nelson Harris. The most obvious example would be Brown versus the Board of Education. Well, that was in 1954. Well, Roanoke City Public Schools did not begin the process of integration until the mid-60s. I mean, almost you know a decade later, because Virginia had what was called massive resistance. Massive resistance was the reason that when the Wilkinson sisters started attending class in Roanoke, it was in segregated schools. Harris explains that governors and state legislatures, including those in Virginia, tried to create legal strategies to circumvent Brown versus Board of Education. Prince Edward County closed their schools to avoid it. Others tried to privatize public schools. One element of massive resistance was tuition grants that the state would provide to white parents so that they could send their kids to a private school so that they could circumvent the Brown decision. But in Roanoke, Wilkinson and his biracial committee had been working and planning. When he sat down to tell his daughters they needed to be brave, it's because they were about to be tested. It went so smoothly, he, he knew that was going to happen. He knew that. But we didn't. I was like, oh, my goodness, we're going to school. <laughs> but we knew we had to be proud. We had to be strong. That's what he wanted us to be. And you could, if you could see from the photos, that's the way we approached it. Nadine and I approached it. Uh, there was no incidents like it was all over the country because of the way my father had set up everything. That The principal even escorted us into the class, into the school. Because my father had probably already set that in motion. The first day for us went well, you know. Of course, we got the looks when we were in there. I remember all of that. <laughs> it was like, they all looked at me like, hmm. But my overall experience was was good. It was just that I didn't want to leave my friends, but I made new friends. I made new friends. The Roanoke Times snapped a photo of Cassandra and Nadine walking into the formerly all-white Melrose Elementary School with their mother, the girls were two of nine children who integrated Roanoke City Schools that year. In the black and white photo, Euphysenia holds the hands of her daughters, each of their heads held high. I mean, now I'm looking back, I'm so glad I was a part of that because it made me fearless. 1960 was a busy year, but there was still more for the Reverend to do. In August 1961, he sent telegrams to the seven black players of the Baltimore Colts and the 12 black Pittsburgh Steelers to boycott an exhibition game planned for Victory Stadium in Roanoke. Wilkinson asked them to refuse to play in a segregated stadium. The players agreed, and the NAACP sued the city over the segregated seating. Days before the game, Wilkinson was among the city and NFL leaders in closed-door meetings. That game did go on as planned, but Wilkinson and other Black fans sat in the whites-only sections of the stadium without incident. What followed were years of work integrating fire stations, theaters, and the hospital. 
He joined the famous March on Washington with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and later joined him again to march in Selma. We did not have the kind of violent clashes between police and African-Americans that marked the civil rights movements and other cities and communities in the South. That does not mean, however, that there was not the same passion by Black leadership in the city for civil rights. But while all this was happening, people in the neighborhood around Washington Park were living, working, and praying around an open-air dump. Where the park is now was once an abandoned quarry. Early in the 1900s, people would dump their household trash into the quarry. But over time, the city began to do the same. Beginning in the mid-40s, the neighbors in and around Washington Park began to complain about stench, vermin, and occasional fires would happen at that dump. And these complaints were uh, brought to the attention of uh, Roanoke City Council and uh, to the city managers at, at the time and to public health officials. He says those people would stop by, but nothing significant was done for another 15 years. And by that time, the dump was filling up. There were articles on occasion in uh, the local newspaper during the 40s and the early 50s, where even the faculty and the principal at the old, what's now the old Addison High School, were complaining about the smell wafting in through the open windows of, uh, of classrooms. So all of this was in a fairly tight footprint that obviously, you know, contributed to a myriad of issues for either the school or park use surrounding residential areas uh, as well. In March of 1963, the Biracial Committee met and requested City Council close the dump by June 1st. There was division among city leaders, though, and the city manager tried to push the closing to the following year. Some leaders rebuked the idea of the matter as being one of racial divide, but the reverend stood firm. He would be on TV a lot, on the news, and it was always a big deal. Here's Wilkinson speaking to WDBJ7 outside Hill Street Baptist Church. Uh, there were other uh, organizations in this community that have fought uh, uh, long and hard to close the stop. And uh, this is a united effort with ministers, uh, PTA associations, NAACP, and what have you. And uh, not only that, uh, a lot of white people have joined in. I effort. We have had a close meeting, closed meeting in private homes uh, to put forth uh, a unified effort to get rid of this ugly dump. He was a great negotiator. He was a great strategist. As I was reading and researching, his strategy to me, his strategy was to find out the weak spots of the, the leaders in Ronald, which back then was mostly white. The biggest weak link was that set the city apart from the ones in the Deep South was that Ronald did not like or and was afraid of demonstrations. As he famously said, he told city council that if you do not get that dub out of there on June the 1st, then I will gather all mothers, all the young mothers, 
and their babies. And we're going to call this demonstration the Baby Carriage Brigade. We're going to march the mothers and their babies in carriages to the dump site to Washington Park. And we're going to hold hands and create a barricade, a human barricade, to keep dump trucks from entering the, the park. On May 24th, City Council voted to close the dump by the June 1st deadline. The following year brought the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It codified laws at the federal level, which overrode state legislatures to enforce desegregation. But still, the Reverend fought. He fought urban renewal and worked hard to keep his church where it was. He was so hurt when they tore down that Gainesville area. He was livid. It took something out of his soul. He was never the same, and he fought so hard against it. And it got to the point that he couldn't do the whole fight. He had to do his fight for his church and have it rebuilt on the same lot that they tore it down on. Did you ever get the sense, did you ever pick up on maybe any times that he was worried or scared or felt the pressure of what he was doing upon him? Because they protected us a lot from that, it was more or less, like you said, a, a feeling. I remember doing when John F. Kennedy was shot. It was just an eerie thing, you know, and thinking, wow, he's out here in the world, you know, and dad was doing some kind of work that put him in, in positions where he could have, same thing, thing could have happened to him. WDBJ7 was at Hill Street Baptist Church, where the Reverend led a memorial service for President Kennedy. All of us look forward with great expectation for long years of leadership. But at this hour, we have to change our view. Much of uh, the work that he started is left to the citizens of the United States, lovers of peace, to carry on. We styled him as a courageous president, man of courage. And when I say a man of courage, I think about that state of mind or spirit which enables one to face danger with boldness and determination. The work was constant for the Reverend, but he never let up, even when someone shot into his home. And all the while, his daughters were watching. And he would always tell us to speak up. Don't let anyone talk to you like that, talk to you that way. I worked for the government for 25 years, and I was always fighting for my communities, my grantees against the establishment all the time. They, they said, here she go, here she go. Why is she always doing this? Why can't she just let it be? Because I couldn't. It was not. It's never been in me to let it be. When their parents divorced, 
the sisters went to live with their mother in Portsmouth, Virginia. And each time they returned to Roanoke, they say fewer people remembered the Reverend Wilkinson. And Harris says Black history in Roanoke got pushed to the periphery. I am very proud. But on the other hand, I'm very angry. Over time, the sisters say their father's legacy was largely forgotten or incorrectly attributed to other civil rights leaders. But the family did not forget. They held on to his scrapbooks and cherished memories, and Nathaniel decided to do something with them. He created a website dedicated to his grandfather's legacy and a foundation to preserve it for current and future generations. To inform them that there would not be progress, the freedoms that they enjoy now, none of those would not exist today without my grandfather's fighting for equal rights in that city. You need to go to the website and digest it. You really did. And if not, it's okay, because we will make sure that the foundation helps Roanoke remember its civil rights history. We will do that. Right. And you know me, I, I'll go down there. In March, Darnell Woods, a member of Hill Street Baptist Church, proposed the city name a street after Reverend Wilkinson. The city agreed. In June, the Wilkinsons returned to Roanoke to see it happen. And I am so happy to be in this place, Roanoke, Virginia. My name is Francis Williams, and y'all have put tears in my eyes two days straight because of my father. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Danita. I am the youngest member of the Wilkinson Daughters. I am the baby. <laughs> At the edge of Washington Park, the Wilkinsons and extended family join members of city council, community leaders, and churches from around the city. Nathaniel took to the podium, and using the booming voice his grandfather was known for, he established the reason for the occasion. Today, we honor such a leader who fearlessly stood against the shackles of injustice during a turbulent time in Ronald's civil rights movement. While the sun beat down this hot June afternoon, Minister Chuck Rhodes recalled how Reverend Wilkinson baptized him as a young boy. He reminded those gathered about the gravity of Wilkinson's work in his era. Reverend Wilkinson not only risked his own safety and security, but he risked that of his family. And he risked that of, of uh, Hill Street Baptist Church. There were churches bombed in the South for doing a lot less work. The Reverend Dr. Edward Burton also made his way to the podium. At 95 years old, Burton was a contemporary of Wilkinson's. He said the Reverend called upon him to test integration in Roanoke's restaurants. Wilkinson looked around, and he could not find enough of us to eat on the, at the restaurants in that day and time. Those of us who were willing to eat, we were assigned two or three restaurants. And so I was assigned three restaurants, and they, they served me in all three. When I got to the first one, they served me a full meal. When I got to the second one, they served me a full meal. When I got to the third one, I suffered because of what Wilkerson did. 
That was a wet Before the new street sign was revealed, Cassandra sang her father's favorite hymn while her sisters dabbed their eyes. While recognition and remembrance have come, Nathaniel says there's still more to do. He would also say, well, we need to do more than just have a name, um, a street name after him. We have to do more um, as a people. And um, we, the, the, he would say the fight still continues. What are the big takeaways about his story and the story of our civil rights movement here growing up? I think since he was a pastor and I'm a pastor, I'll quote from Ecclesiastes chapter three. There is a time to speak and there is a time to be silent. And I think Reverend Wilkinson in his day during the civil rights struggle in Roanoke knew how to strike that balance to make his work effective. He embodied that kind of wisdom that that verse in Ecclesiastes talks about. He knew the season, if you will, and how to respond to the seasons of that civil rights era in our city to get the job done. In 2002, Roanoke's NAACP honored Wilkinson by naming its annual Citizen of the Year Award the Reverend R.R. Wilkinson Memorial Award for Social Justice. And in June of this year, he was honored at the Strong Men and Women in Virginia History Ceremony presented by the Library of Virginia and Dominion Energy. If you'd like to learn more about the family history, you can visit rrwilkinson.org. Next week on the Hometown Stories podcast, we're going on a walk. That home that you're looking at sat right here in this field. Roanoke City's Black history is rich and unique. For one Roanoke man, it's also personal. It kind of gives you a sense of, I have a responsibility to do something for my neighborhood. Jordan Bell is taking a unique approach to preserve the history, leading walking tours to show the historic Gainesboro neighborhood as it was and how he hopes it can be. Without Gainesboro, I wouldn't be um, the man that I am today. Come along with us next week on Hometown Stories. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.